From UNH, Cooperative Extension, this is Relative to New Hampshire. Step into the classroom and listen in while a group of UNH students explore the underlying aspects of current issues under consideration at New Hampshire's State House. We pick apart those issues and connect with experts all to share with you insights from our scientific community that enhance our understanding of the biological world right here in New Hampshire, home of the greatest democracy in the world. I'm your moderator, Dr. Anna-Kate Wallingford. I'm Tyler. I'm a senior neuroscience and behavior major. Tyler has been following HB 220, establishing medical freedom in immunization, which was passed and adopted in this year's session with an amendment. The amendment essentially added the establishment of a committee to examine the policy of medical intervention going forward. The law states that no person may be compelled to receive an immunization for COVID-19 in order to secure, receive, or access any public facility, any public benefit, or any public service from the state of New Hampshire, any political subdivision thereof, including but not limited to counties, cities, towns, precincts, water districts, school districts, school administrative units, or quasi-public entities. Tyler attended public hearings held by the House Committee on Health and Human Services and Elderly Affairs, and he reported to the group on a regular basis what he learned. This group is a team of science liaisons made up of UNH students from a diverse array of programs in the College of Life Sciences and Agriculture, as well as my co-moderators, Extension's Public Engagement Program Manager, Nate Burnett, and Extension's Public Affairs Manager, Lauren Banker. Obviously, this is a controversial topic. And things seem to change from day to day in terms of what we know about this disease. So keep in mind that much of this recording was made in the past. I will be careful to point out when these conversations occurred. Um, But let's jump right in with Tyler's summary of the bill and the hearing he attended in February of 2021. Establishing medical freedom for immunizations. Um, Basically, it establishes the right for people to have bodily integrity and um, you know, doesn't compel them to accept any medical intervention that they don't want to have. And it also protects them from being discriminated against or if they uh, refuse any sort of medical intervention or immunization. I thought it was really interesting because of, of course, the pandemic and the vaccines that we have going around and what that might mean for the future this year. Like the big argument that kept coming up, of course, was the argument of um, people having integrity over their own bodies and what they put in their bodies and what they don't. But kind of an interesting um, origin for this bill was that apparently um, in New Hampshire, foster parents have to have all of their immunizations before they can uh, foster children, which I did not know. And if they decide that they don't want to get immunized, then they are ineligible to become foster parents. Um, So it's kind of you either get your shots or you can't be parents. And so this um, bill is the person who wrote this bill kind of wanted to um, bypass that, I guess, or make it so that people could be foster parents if they didn't want to uh, immunize. The, the conversation really went towards how this bill would affect kids in school once we start having more um, kids in physical classes and whether it got into, you know, the whole realm of like, 
whether we were going to segregate the non-vaccinated kids to one side of the class and all the other kids to like another side of the class and like this whole kind of debate started happening some were equating getting vaccinated to treating people um like they treat them now with like peanut allergies like that they would still just be a member of the class and that there wouldn't be any segregation but it's not really the same thing as a peanut allergy especially if like the kids are like breathing on the other kids uh, let's see, uh, it got into like, should schools be mandating vaccines or not? The general consensus was that it should be left up to medical professionals, whether we should be mandating vaccines or not. And then they had a um, doctor of public health, Beth Daly from HHS come in as like a consultant. She did a lot of like basic information on uh, vaccines and because at that point, the conversation definitely turned towards the coronavirus and getting vaccinated. Um, and so she did a lot of basic information on vaccines. And then um, after that, she fielded a bunch of questions. One thing that I didn't know was uh, specifically about the Moderna vaccine, which claims to be 95% effective, but what it's effective towards is preventing you from getting sick and it has no effect on stopping whether you actually get the virus or not. It's just whether you're symptomatic, which was new information to me. I thought that it like prevented you from actually getting the virus. So I feel like that's probably a misconception that a lot of the public will have as well. You know, I think when it comes to that Moderna vaccine and like the difference between symptoms versus being a carrier of the virus, I think that there's just not enough information about that. So like that would basically be like the the genre of questions you would ask an expert like is there enough information to make any of the assumptions that people are making, you know? Like that's my big thing is like how how much data do we have to collect? How many different types of experiments do we have to collect before we're like super certain? You know, like this is a, this is a question for risk. So like even though like it'd be really nice to seek out some um, like medical or epidemiological research. You also kind of want to think about who can describe a risk to us. So a very reductive synopsis on how the COVID vaccines work. First of all, it's important to know that viruses are not technically living things, at least not according to most definitions of living organisms. They're essentially just pieces of genetic material that float around and trick your body into replicating more virus. In some cases, um, that tricking your body into producing more virus results in symptoms, in disease. This particular piece of genetic material, SARS-CoV-2, the pathogen, can make us incredibly sick in the process of taking over our bodies, and our immune systems have never encountered it before. The processes that normally destroy dangerous microbes entering our bodies are caught unawares, unprepared. Each of the handful of available vaccines are essentially training our bodies to fight this virus so that it cannot cause the disease, the symptoms, the fever, the coughing, the loss of taste, um, problems with breathing, and unfortunately, the deadly symptoms. Well, lots of folks might be familiar with the first vaccines in history, which were essentially weaker versions of a deadly pathogen. These COVID vaccines are completely different. They do not give you COVID. 
the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines are mRNA vaccines. The mRNA vaccines get your body temporarily to produce fakes of the protein that stop dotting that lipid coat around the virus, those famous spike proteins that give the virus that corona or crown appearance. Johnson & Johnson is a vector vaccine. Vector vaccines use a different harmless virus to introduce those unique coronavirus proteins to your body. This is all to let the macrophages and lymphocytes living in your body to recognize the real thing if it shows up and that they should get to work in destroying them. And this is all to say that it is technically possible for the virus to be living in the nose of a perfectly healthy vaccinated individual. It's unclear on how possible it is for that vaccinated person with a nose full of virus to get somebody else sick. The science just isn't there to answer that question yet. But all of our questions about research kept leading us back to the same questions about risk. How do we know to trust this research? It's all happening so fast. Is it safe? How do we measure how risky taking this vaccine is? And what about these participants in these research studies? How safe is it to be a participant in a human-based research study? Well, anybody from the research world will tell you this is not our first rodeo. There is a robust system of weighing risk in research. There's a particularly robust system that weighs the risk to the participants in those research projects. We had a discussion with UNH's IRB experts. That's the institutional review boards. And their jobs are to assure the protection of human subjects in research. UNH doesn't do any biomedical research, so they can't speak to vaccine trials specifically, but I think you'll see why we found this conversation so interesting. I'll let them introduce themselves. So, um, I'm Julie, and I'm the Director of Research Integrity Services at the university. That's a unit within the Office for Research, Economic Engagement, and Outreach. I'm Melissa McGee, and I work with Julie and Sue in Research Integrity Services. I'm a compliance officer. Also, I'm a member of the IRB, and I'm the HIPAA Privacy Officer for the university. Hi, I'm Sue Jalbert. I also am a compliance officer in um, Research Integrity Services. I uh, work with IRB, IACUC, and Conflicts of Interest. So IACUC is the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. So that is a similar program for, for, for the humane care and use of vertebrate animals. So I think we'll start kind of basic and just ask, you know, what function does the IRB serve for researchers when they propose studies? The IRB uh, is the committee that will review the protocol for the use of human subjects in research to ensure that the human subjects are appropriately protected, not exploited or coerced into participating in research, and to make sure that the research is fully voluntary and that the protocols make sense for, the, for what the questions are. And so it's a primarily faculty, but also staff members from the university are on the committee. Julie, Sue, and I are administrators as well for the committee, and so we do initial reviews of protocols that are submitted to make sure that they're complete. If you look on the website, there's three levels of review. So exempt level of review is one IRB member reviews it, and so that's a very minimal risk. Uh, expedited level of review would have two reviewers, so potentially um, still minimal risk, but um, sometimes the risks are a little bit different. And a full board means at a convened meeting of um, a quorum of the IRB membership and discussion amongst the members for review of those either greater than minimal risk studies or studies involving vulnerable populations. 
And the um, IRB provides feedback and um, guidance um, as far as, you know, if there's suggested ways to improve a research study to better protect the rights of the human subjects. Um, so it doesn't just sort of rubber stamp things and it doesn't just say it does or doesn't approve. It provides uh, pretty detailed feedback. If you've gone through the process, you know. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. true. Um, for those that are reviewing research proposals, do they generally have um, expertise in the area, like if it was a biology or psychology type study that was being proposed? Yeah, so the IAB has to comply with federal regulations as well as kind of ethical principles. And then any state laws, we have to make sure that research, the, the, there's no state law around IRB, but there are state laws that researchers have to comply with when they're conducting their research. So the IRB is somewhat responsible for making sure that people don't violate state law, although that's not, our, uh, that's not um, the IRB's primary mission. One of the requirements in the federal regulations that IRBs have the expertise in the areas of the research. And so we have um, so so we have 12 members on the IRB, and we have what we try to do is recruit people from um, departments or disciplines where we see that a lot of activity. Um, so we have somebody from psychology, someone from sociology, someone from education, someone from social work, etc. And then so that's a kind of a disciplinary perspective. But then we also have, there's uh, types of research. So we have people who are expert quantitative and qualitative researchers. So we have that covered. And then within that, within the disciplines is um, expertise in the types of research, particularly with regard to either the procedures. So we have somebody from kinesiology, from exercise science. Um, and then also we have uh, experts for research involving children, research involving uh, individuals maybe who have a compromised um, cognitive capacity and then any other expertise. But we can't cover everything <laughs> because otherwise our IRB would be, you know, humongous. How we deal with things. So for instance, we used to have a physician on the IRB, mm -hmm. but we, um, as I explained to Tyler, is there are generally two types of IRBs. One sort of review what we call social behavioral educational research, which is like us at UNH, because we don't have a medical school, uh, we're not linked with an academic medical center. So the, the types of IRBs that usually in institutions like that are called biomedical IRBs. And they would have, you know, a whole slew of physicians and oncologists and all the rest of it, because that's the kind of protocols that they review or the research studies. But if we have studies where we don't think we have the expertise, we can use consultants. So like I said, we had a physician on the IRB for many years, but we don't see that many studies. So when she retired from the university, we decided to go to a consultant role. So we now use physicians as consultants to the IRB if we have anything that exercise scientists feels that she's not qualified to review, if it's got a more medical piece to it that she's not comfortable with. Then we'll get a when we'll get a consult. So that's how we handle it, and that's kind of normal, um, so that we meet the spirit um, and the kind of the requirements of the regulations around that piece. So my next question is: How does the IRB go about assessing risk in studies involving human subjects? So we have, uh, so there, there are different types of risk, and we can categorize them as legal risk, physical risk, social risk, economic risk, psychological risk, and kind of there's this 
nebulous one called like risk of um, uh, daily life. So that's kind of a catch-all. The federal regulations have a definition of minimal risk, which is the risk of everyday life for the population that you're looking at. So the risk of everyday life for you, for a student walking across campus, would be very different than somebody who has to commute down to Boston you know, every day just because of traffic and all the rest of it. So it's relative to the risk of the individual, to, to the life of the person. And so there is actually, I should have looked this up, there's a, it's risk of harm. So that's what risk is, it's risk of harm. And again, we've got these different types of harm. So, you know, if I were to, or a researcher were to ask um, undergraduates who are not 21 about uh, alcohol, drinking alcoholic beverages, and it was identifiable, there could be a legal risk there if there was a subpoena or a breach of confidentiality. Whereas asking about your dining habits are probably, you know, that's minimal risk. So one is a legal risk, one is kind of risk of everyday life. Um, so there's different types of risk. So we look at what is the researcher doing? And, and in social behavioral research, that's generally what kinds of questions are you asking? Um, in our more, in, in the kinesiology, and now we're getting into a little bit of clinical um, with um, communication, what's it called? Um, communication sciences and disorders. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so that's a bit more clinical. What you're getting into is, is and, and we've seen some like having fMRIs for research. So research is, even at UNH, is coming to the point where it, it, it's, it's actually kind of stretching the IRB a little, and we have to make sure that we have the expertise. But so a risk from an fMRI is very different from a risk of asking you about what ice cream flavors you like, or you know, um, uh, do you text while you drive, or you know, um, or, or having somebody play a game on the computer and ask you make how you feel. So we see all kinds of stuff. But again, it, it's risk. What harm might the procedure, the activity, or the information elicited, what harm might that cause? Primarily for information, it's if there's a breach of confidentiality. So somehow, you know, you left your laptop in the library and you had all your data on it and you didn't lock it and somebody stole your laptop, broke into it and found interview transcripts that are on your computer. That's, that would be a breach of confidentiality. Uh, we had a researcher who had his laptop stolen from his car when everything got stolen out of his car and he had all his research data on it. So those that's what a breach of confidentiality is. That's quite different from the physical risks of running on a treadmill, having a blood draw, those kinds of things. So and we look at that. And so there's, a, there's two components to risk too. There's the magnitude of harm. Are we talking about oh, I'm really embarrassed. I said, I don't like Melissa and now she knows it. Um, or um, we've had one, you know, your dating partner and they find out your answers from a survey, you know, which they weren't supposed to, um, mm. those kinds of things. That's all the way up to falling off a treadmill when you're running and breaking your leg. So, okay, so what's the, what's the um, harm? What's the magnitude of harm? And what's the uh, possibility of that happening? Is it like one in 10 or is it one in a million? And you take those two components and you do some fancy mathematical, mathematical equation, just kidding, and you come up with, okay, <laughs> this is minimal risk or this is more than minimal risk. 
are there certain metrics that are used as guidelines for like how invasive a study might be for a participant? Kind of getting more at the immunization question. So the expedited categories actually speak to that because uh, uh, four of them speak to products not regulated by or products uh, investigations with products regulated by the FDA, which is drugs, devices, biologics kind of thing. It's got blood drawers in it. Another one has to do with procedures you'd normally see in an off, uh, an, a physician's office. So you can do anything except radiation you can do through that one. So that would be like an EKG, an EEG, um, probably an fMRI, those kinds of things. And then another category is to do with, um, again, to regular procedures in an office, putting sensors on, spitting, you know, <laughs> uh, urine, those kinds of things. Um, but one of them actually does have in there, and maybe Melissa's looking it up, <laughs> It's about, it can't be, in, they have to be, uh, it can't be invasive. Is, is that, am I right, Melissa? Right. So it's um, non-invasive procedures routinely employed in clinical practice. So things like uh, physical sensors on the body, weighing or testing sensory acuity, MRI, mm. ECG, EKGs, but not x-ray or microwave. So that shows you, so we can review these as expedited as long as they're minimal risk. So if it doesn't fall into that category or none of the other categories, then it has to go to full board, which unless it was the blood draw, which is expedited number one, I think, then that would lead you to believe more invasive things need to go to full board. And I would point out that the, the words exempt and expedited have nothing to do with speed or um, the way that the review is conducted, particularly at UNH, because we do review all exempt level studies. Um, it's just at the forefront of my mind because I had to answer a question this morning from somebody who wants to participate in an IRB that another institution deemed to um, be exempt from review. So we would call something that doesn't require IRB review is not human subjects research. But if it's human subjects research, it will be reviewed by our IRB at one of the three levels. And exempt is just a level. Expedited doesn't mean it happens any faster than exempt. <laughs> so they're the names from the regulation. So you were looking for that. You're looking, you know, to talk about or specifically immunizations, right? So we're talking about vaccine trials. That's where you is that where you want this to go because of the IRB? Yeah, so the bill that I'm looking at, um, it's trying to establish freedom from immunizations. Um, and when I attended the public hearing, I actually learned that the origin of this bill was um, made because I guess uh, people in the that are looking to be prospective parents in the foster care system have to have all of their immunizations uh, in order to adopt. Uh, and if you're unable to um, get them for whatever reason, whether it's biology or a belief system, um, you're ineligible to be in the, the foster care system. And so uh, we're kind of extrapolating that now with the current times that we're in into vaccines as well. Okay. 
oh, this is constitutionally complicated, I will say, as a lawyer. <laughs> yes. Very complicated concerns. It has to do with individual rights versus regulatory rights of the government. And very interesting origins. I'm, I'm, I didn't know that was where you were coming from. They also talked a lot about in the public hearing um, what the implications for this would be with um, children in the coming months with the new school year, um, grade school children, um, whether, you know, those that uh, had not gotten a vaccine yet or um, their parents don't believe in vaccinations, whether they would be in separate classrooms or if they would be divided uh, with plexiglass barriers in the same classroom or, or how that would look as well. So as you said, there are definitely a lot of complications that come with this, this bill for sure. Yeah, and so I, I would think that um, just to stay on the kind of the IRB piece of it is that if somebody, I mean, so an immune right now, the COVID-19 is not actually, it's, it's authorized by emergency use by the FDA just to get every bit, it hasn't gone, it, it's gone through the clinical trials, but it's not a regular vaccine. Um, I mean, it is a vaccine, but again, it, it, it's under emergency use. And, and these are incredibly um, unique times for vaccine development. Um, so Professor Alsawa in MCBS, um, she has an ethic, uh, ethics class. And so I went to talk to them a couple of weeks ago and I just, pulled up an image that I found in a nature paper about the standard development of a vaccine is somewhere usually between uh, 12 to 20 years, you know, and, and actually a lot of drugs. If, if they make it past, you know, the bench science, then the animal testing. And once you've gone through the animal testing, then you have to go into clinical trials, phase one, two, three, then it gets authorized if it's successful. And there's phase four, which is the monitoring of the drug or whatever. And vaccines are no different. But the development of the COVID-19 vaccine was, you know, 12 to 15 months. And so way, way, I think that if people, um, as I see it, it, there are lots of reasons for maybe not getting vaccinated, but one of them might be it's not safe. And so one way to counter that is, particularly if you're going to go to a public hearing to talk about the safety of vaccines. And this, of course, again, is separate from religious, uh, all the other reasons why you might not want a vaccine is I think there's a lot of data out there on the safety of the three vaccines, because right now we're three different types and they've got different sets of safety data. Looking at the data, you know, the good thing is, is you're coming from a scientific perspective. So what are the data that support or refute a position on something like this. And just looking at the safety of it, there's lots out there for you as students to go and find about the data about the safety of these vaccines. Well, I think all of this really gets to the point of what we're after, where the bill that Tyler is, is, is talking about is certainly about civil liberties. Right, so we'll put that separate and aside. We can't comment on on people's civil liberties. Not 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 that's not our our project. However, there are some people who are going to have vaccine hesitancy based on the speed. But how important is it to hear how robust the system is, even for projects where we're asking people their favorite ice cream flavors, or you know, like things that you wouldn't think 
oh, there's a whole system. There's a whole um, office at the university. There's a whole board of people who have to review it. And hearing all these details is super, super important for the average person who probably doesn't think about risk that much. So, and again, I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about um, the, the process that the immunization research has gone through, but do you have a sense that it's just gone by the book? Is there any reason to think that the normal um, testing procedures for the vaccines for, for COVID have been done differently than they would be in other circumstances, aside from being done really, really quickly? I mean, from what I know about it, and I'm, it's just what, you know, apart from maybe seeing it in science and nature or some of the science more, you know, the academic stuff, not looking at it on the news or, you know, things like that, I would say um, if it's not as safe, it's nearly as safe because how they've done the clinical trial process is instead of being sequential steps, like you take two years to do this, then you move on to the next phase to do this, and then you move on. To, they've actually, as soon as they've got part way into a phase, they've started the next phase, but they've carried on with that. And then, so they've started stacking them. And so that's how they've managed to compress the timeline and as I understand it, they're still doing everything that they've done before. It's just, it's not like that. I'll, I'll send you the graphic from this Nature article because it really helped. You talk about science communication, right? <laughs> it was like, oh, I'm a lay person. I mean, I understand clinical trials, but don't understand everything, you know, whatever. But it was like, oh, this, right, this makes sense. So, yeah. That would be terrific. That's exactly what we're looking for, because we're obviously not here to tell people, don't worry, it's safe. It's more like, how do you decide whether or not it's safe? And knowing that none of the steps have been skipped, they've just been done in a kind of accelerated fashion. Yeah. aside from learning more about how experts in the field of risk assessment feel about these new vaccines, and I feel a lot better about the speed at which they were developed, it's also really neat to hear a little bit about the kinds of research are conducted here at UNH. So a big thank you to everybody who helped us with this project, and thank you for listening. Relative to New Hampshire is a production of UNH Cooperative Extension an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. UNH Cooperative Extension is a nonpartisan organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire... New Hampshire counties and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. This podcast was made possible by the UNH Extension Internship Program. If you're interested in supporting great work like this for the future, learn more at extension.unh.edu internships.